Now, not that I would expect you to be following uh, this closely, but, uh, but this is my, I went back and counted, this is my sixth Vision Sunday, uh, what we've come to call the Sunday on which we have the, uh, the congregational meeting. And each year on this Sunday, I've preached through various aspects of our purpose as a church. We exist, um, I like to say, this is what kind of rolls off my tongue, we exist to celebrate and to proclaim the eternal life, the transformative hope, and the unshakable joy that comes only through Jesus. And if you go back and you, there was a summary, I guess, at the congregational meeting in 2019, which would have been my first, a summary of all that. And then if you go back and you look at the sermons each of the last uh, years since then, eternal life, 2020, transformative hope, 2021, unshakable joy, 2022, and then last year, only through Jesus. That's how we've kind of walked through it. Now this year, and with that as an historical base as to what our purpose is, I want to start looking at our priorities, at our characteristics. What are the characteristics of a church like that? A church that exists to celebrate and to proclaim the life, hope, and joy that's found only in Jesus. And, and, and I want to start with the, the first of those characteristics by looking at the centrality of the gospel, keeping the gospel at the very center of all that we do as a church. So I want to take one text, there's lots of texts we could use, but I want to take one text and I want to preach the gospel as clearly as I can this morning and then, and then make a couple of comments as to how we can keep that central. And the text I want to use is Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 23 is the text that's printed in your bulletin. It's a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, and, 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 and we're going to read, I want to actually get a running start and go back to verse 15. This won't be on the screen. I want to go back, start reading at verse 15, and I'll tell you when I get to the official reading uh, when we get to verse 19. Let me ask you to stand, if you're able to stand, uh, out of uh, respect for God's word. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Colossians chapter 1, remember I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Uh, This is uh, Paul talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent okay here's the actual scripture text noted in your bulletin verse 19 for in him that's in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and here's where I would really want to focus on this morning these last three verses Paul turns to the Colossians and he says and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Roy Roy and Bertha Byram. Roy and Bertha Byram were both medical doctors, missionaries in Korea in the 1930s. In fact, they were the very first missionaries who were supported by Faith Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, the church that I attended when I was in Wilmington. 
They were the very first missionaries supported by Faith Presbyterian Church. And this is how it happened. Because in, the June, in June of 1936, uh, Roy and Bertha were actually in the United States. They were visiting churches on furlough and were staying in Wilmington at the home of Harold Laird, who was the pastor, the founding, uh, the, the founding pastor of what would become Faith Presbyterian Church. Well, he was the pastor of a church there in Wilmington, a very historic church there in Wilmington in 1936, when he... And a large part of that congregation were forced to move out of this historic church in downtown Wilmington because of their commitment to the teachings of the Bible and their historic understanding of the Bible's teaching about sin and the necessity of salvation through Christ alone. He was forced out of that church along with a large part of the congregation. And Roy and Bertha Byron, these missionaries home on furlough, were actually present at Dr. Laird's church trial before the presbytery when his ministerial credentials were revoked by the old denomination. And so the Byrams were witnesses to the formation of a new church. And they quickly realized that, hey, we actually, <laughs> we actually fall in line with Dr. Laird and what he believes. If he's out, then what does that mean for, for us? They realized that they too would need to leave the old denomination because their core principles about the truth of the Bible, the identity and the supremacy of Christ, all these things that we were just reading about in Colossians chapter 1, these, these core principles were no longer in line with the prevalent teaching of the existing Presbyterian denomination. And so after 15 years of serving on the mission field with that denomination's board of foreign missions, doctors Roy and Bertha Byram, they were both medical doctors, they left their old affiliation and they joined a newly formed missions agency. Now what I've always found fascinating about the story is that when they left the denomination, it wasn't just an administrative change. It wasn't as if they just, you know, changed business cards. Hey, we need to get new business cards printed now because we're with someone else and then just go about continuing to do the exact same thing they had been doing. No, it meant that they had to leave behind their life's work in Korea. As doctors, they had devoted themselves for 15 years at this point to the medical needs of the people that they served in Korea. And they had just finished constructing a brand new hospital in Korea, a hospital that belonged in its entirety now to the old denomination, which they would now have to leave behind. And here's what I found fascinating. What would make them do something like that? The Korea of the 1930s is not the relatively modern South Korea today. Do you know how hard it would have been to build a hospital in Korea in the early 1930s? Do you know how much, how much need there was for medical care in Korea in the 1930s? Why would anyone walk away from that over what some would have characterized as a, 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 a mere doctrinal dispute? I mean, don't let that get in the way of real work that's being done here. Right? Some people would have thought they were crazy. Somebody might even have thought that they're being morally negligent, that they, that, 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 they, that they should stay. Don't let this little dispute about doctrinal matters in the church, don't let it distract from the work that you're doing, the, the necessary work that you're doing, right? You're crazy, you're morally negligent unless, unless, and I think only unless, the needs of the people in Korea and in Asia and throughout the entire world for that matter were actually more great, were actually greater than the medical needs that they were meeting. And the medical needs were great. And the medical needs were important. But unless the Byrons believed that the message of eternal healing that they had ultimately come to proclaim was actually far more important than hospitals and medical care, unless that were true, then they should have stayed. But they didn't. 
It would have been crazy or negligent for them to leave that all behind unless the gospel was true. So while in a very real sense, the gospel, I hope, is the central message of of every sermon here on every Sunday, we need to look again at what Paul's saying here because we need to ask ourselves that question. In making the gospel message central above all other things, above other, all other aspects of our service, by making that and that alone foundational, are we crazy? Are we morally negligent? Or is it actually true? I chose this passage from Colossians because I think it summarizes the central storyline of the entire Bible. And Paul actually points to it, calls it the gospel at the end of verse 23. In other words, in case you weren't sure, in case you needed a quick summary, in case you were tempted to misunderstand the gospel, Paul says, here it is, here's the gospel. And he breaks it down into three parts, three components that are all essential. And they're kind of in those last three verses, 21, 22, 23. The gospel communicates three things. It communicates that you were alienated from God by sin to the Christian. That's what you were. You were alienated from God by sin. But then secondly, the gospel communicates that you have been reconciled with God through Christ. And third, that you will be presented to God as holy. See, that's what the gospel communicates. You were alienated from God by sin, that you, you have been reconciled with God by Christ, and you will be presented to God as holy. Three things, those are the three points. Alienated by sin, reconciled by Christ, presented as holy. That's the gospel. Let's go through it. First, alienated by sin. Verse 21. Here's where Paul starts. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, when you see the word alienated, if the word alienated were all by itself, you could think of it as passive, right? Like separated, two people who were just different. Maybe somebody who was lost, right? Alienated, right? Maybe, 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 someone, maybe someone else had done it to them, right? They alienated you. could be taken passively, right? It, it, it's like when you encounter a different culture or a different way of doing something and you say, wow, this idea, this way of doing things is totally foreign to me. This is an alien concept, right? You could take it like that. But when you say something like that, you aren't necessarily indicating that there is hostility or animosity, only that there's a difference. Now here though, that's not what Paul's saying when he says alienated. We need something more than just estranged, separated, wandering. He's, he means that we're separated, we're alienated, but we're alienated by hostility, Right? But, but, but even if you just stopped there, it wouldn't be enough because you wouldn't know whose responsibility the, uh, the hostility was because it could be hostility done to you. Okay, right? I'm, I'm a victim. I'm alienated by someone else's hostility. But the text tells us who the, whose responsibility it is because Paul tells us you were alienated and hostile, he says, doing evil deeds. See, it's not just a generic hostility or hostility of someone else. You were hostile. And you were doing evil deeds. So there you go. Our evil desires, which are evidenced by our evil behavior, they're the cause of the conflict. They're the cause of the alienation. In other words, it's, it's our fault. Now, this is hard for us to accept because calling something evil immediately causes us to, to pause. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually cause us to pause because most people don't think it's appropriate to call some things evil. I mean, there, there's some that hold intellectual positions of you know, you know, true, consistent postmodernism. There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as right and wrong, right? People say that kind of stuff and they, and they think they hold to that. But I find that that's not actually what most people 
believe. Most people don't actually struggle with calling some things wrong and some things evil. That's not primarily where the struggle is. The struggle generally comes is, is with the question, says who? Right? Who gets to call it evil? In other words, who gets to decide? Because in general, the answer that we prefer to that question, who gets to decide what's evil and not evil, is me. I get to decide. See, this raises the whole who's really in charge question because the gospel tells us that it is God from whom we've been alienated. It's not just some other person. And we need to work it out. We need to compromise, maybe meet halfway in the, in the middle. That's what you might do if you were alienated from just another, another person. But no, we are alienated from God. And because this is just a summary, Paul doesn't completely unpack the idea. But the God to whom he's referring is, well, he's God. <laughs> the one who exists eternally outside of time. The one who is the source of everything, knows everything. The one who controls everything. The one who made the earth on which we walk. The air which we breathe. The body in which we live. That God. That's the God from whom we're alienated. And if there is a God like this, who made you and who made everything, then it means rightly that we are this God's subjects. It's his sovereign rule that we need to accept. Uh, years ago, I read a, um, a book by the former deputy director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Uh, and he tells of the time when he was, was serving in London as the liaison between all of the branches of the U.S. intelligence community and British intelligence. He was, the, he was the primary liaison between the U.S. intelligence community and British intelligence. And one day he received, because of his position, an invitation from the Queen, the Queen of England, to join her and other members of the royal family at a dinner and reception at Buckingham Palace. And, and along with the invitation were all kinds of detailed instructions, where to go, what to wear, what you're to say, who you're to talk to. But what it did not have was any instructions about how to RSVP, how to reply to the queen uh, that he was planning to attend. So not wanting to offend, Morell asked some of his British colleagues. He said, how do I RSVP uh, to the palace, to the queen, uh, to let her know that I'm, that I'm coming? And the response was, you don't. The assumption is, that when the queen invites you to join her at the palace, you will be there. No response is needed because the response is never no. Now that's sovereignty. But relative to God, it's sovereignty only in a very limited sense. Right? If the queen of England, who has, relatively speaking, very little power to actually require you to do anything, even a British citizen, but especially an American citizen. But if that, if that sovereign nonetheless enjoys and expects that level of respect and admiration from people who aren't even from her country, right, then what right might the God of the universe have? See, this is where the gospel is misunderstood from the very outset. The first misunderstanding of the gospel is that we don't really need it. That whatever's wrong with the world, that whatever's wrong with us, it's not really that big a deal. Nothing that it's some proper education, nothing some sensitivity training can't fix, nothing that the right doctor or therapist or medication can't address, right? But that's not where the gospel starts. The gospel starts by saying that this problem is a very big deal. We are alienated from God, and it's our fault. But how is that gospel? I mean, actually, step back for a second. How is that gospel? How is that good news? It sounds like very bad news. Well, and it is, in, I mean, in a sense, if you just leave it there. But even, even in knowing that, there's good news, right? Because where, where this, you know, in a, 
where this becomes good news, maybe you've had this experience or you've known someone who's had this experience, right? The experience of knowing that there's something medically wrong with you but being told by doctors that they can't figure it out. Right? And, and even more frustrating, explaining your symptoms to a doctor only to have them downplayed uh, as no big deal, right, is, is, the, is, the, is the feeling that like, well, you know, maybe, like, do I, am I wrong? Am I misunderstanding here? Right, when, when that happens, in the midst of the uncertainty and the midst of the, of the suffering that you're experiencing with this undiagnosed condition, the start of the good news is to finally find a doctor who takes your symptoms seriously and who accurately is able to diagnose the condition and say, this is what's wrong. You're not crazy. You see, the gospel looks accurately and the gospel alone looks accurately at the human condition of a world with terrorists and violence and poverty and abuse and natural disaster. The Bible and the gospel alone looks at that and takes those symptoms seriously and says, you're not crazy, it's wrong. And let me tell you why. You don't need to pretend anymore. The world is seriously messed up. You don't need to minimize it. There's no amount of education. There's no amount of sensitivity training that will solve it. That's why those things don't work. There's no amount of government intervention from the political left. There's no amount of individual self-reliance from the political right. There's no amount of that that will solve it. And the gospel tells us why. Because the gospel, and only the gospel, accurately diagnoses the problem. The problem is not simply one of ignorance or money or willpower. The problem is rebellion against the sovereign rule of God in our world. And that's freeing. Finally, finally we know what's wrong with us. But a terminal diagnosis <laughs> is only freeing if it's not too late to do something about it. I mean, it's nice to kind of know, oh, that's what's wrong, right? But, but, if, but if, there is not, if there's not time to do, a, do anything about it, then it is just, uh, maybe it's just nice information. But that's not all we know. Paul continues in verse 22. The gospel is that you were alienated from God by sin, but now... Verse 22, point number two, you have been reconciled with God by Christ. Right, verse 22, you have the contrast between what was and what now is. Verse 21, once. Verse 22, now. Once alienated, now reconciled. Once alienated by hostility, now accepted and loved. And here we see the easier to understand sense of the gospel because this now is certainly, and without any objection if you grant point number one, this is most certainly good news. Hostility is now love. But there is still a great potential for misunderstanding of the gospel here. And the misunderstanding usually happens by us moving very quickly over how exactly this once turns into now, how exactly the hostility turns into reconciliation. In other words, it's very easy to just sort of gloss over what's happened here and undervalue the cost associated with moving from once to now. I mean, it's just one verse, right? I mean, just, but, but there's a lot between once and now. Even in Christian circles, we become, I think, maybe sometimes too used to it. For example, if we look at verse 22, and we see the way reconciliation happens is through the sacrificial, Jesus, uh, sacrificial death of Jesus. That's what it says, verse 22. And in church, many of us, we've become very accustomed to this type of language, which in a sense is good. It means you hear it a lot. You should be hearing it a lot. That you've been reconciled by the death of Jesus, right? That's good. You should hear it a lot. But the problem is, right, even, even when our children can recite the truth, Jesus takes away our sins. That's true. That's right. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul says. But does that stun you? Does that still amaze you? Does that make you stop and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. 
What did Jesus say? Did you say that Jesus Christ, the one that you just read to me at the beginning, you know, verse 15, all that stuff, that that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he died intentionally for me? Hold on. If that's true, that's amazing. We don't do that. Not often. And Paul knew that we would be prone to miss it, which is why, if you go back, like I said, to verses 15 to 18 of Colossians 1, you'll see that leading into his summary of the gospel, you'll see him describing who Jesus Christ is so that by the time you get to what Jesus did, you can be stunned and amazed. He spends all these verses describing who Jesus is so that when you get to his work, you're like, wow, wait, you mean he did that? Look at verse 15 again. This is why I wanted to do the running start. Most scholars believe this was an early hymn of the church because of its poetic tone. Right? This is how Paul describes Jesus, the image of the invisible God, God himself, the exact likeness and representation of God, the firstborn of all creation, not firstborn in a chronological sense, but in a sense of, of primacy, right? The firstborn son, particularly the son of a king, the full rights and privileges of the king. That's what the firstborn has. That's what Jesus has. The entire creation, what he says goes because he made it. He made it all. Verse 16 makes that very clear. All things created through him and for him. So when you set it up that way, and when you lead into verses 19 and 20, when Paul says that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, when you set it up that way, then you're ready to be stunned by the once alienated, now reconciled comparison of the gospel. When Drs. Roy and Bertha Byram made the decision to leave the denominational missions agency, uh, they not only had to leave the hospital that they had spent years building, they had to leave the home where they had been living. Now, in some cases, right, it can be difficult for children to make transitions like this. They had children with them on the mission field, but in this case, it was actually one of the Byram's teenage daughters who provided the gospel perspective. Kids, think about this. It was one of the children who spoke wisdom, gospel wisdom, into this, into this struggle for them. Her daughter, their daughter reportedly said, we have suffered so little for Jesus in comparison to what Jesus has suffered for us. We ought to be able to give up our home for him. Hear what she said? In comparison to what Jesus has suffered for us, we have suffered so little for him. We ought to be able to give up our home. In other words, how comparatively small to leave your home for Jesus when Jesus, the eternal God and King of the creator of all things, left his home for you. How do you get that perspective? Only when you're stunned by what Jesus did. And he didn't just leave his home to visit us. He came to rescue us, to reconcile us in his body of flesh by his death. That's what it says. And note who initiates this. Who's the subject of verse 22? Who does the reconciliation thing? Right? Do we reconcile ourselves? No, no. God's the initiator. Who does the alienating though? We do the alienating. We do the alienating. The estranged relationship is our fault. God does the reconciling. The reconciliation is completely by God's grace. And on the cross, our reconciliation happens because of Christ's estrangement. Consider that. Do you see how that flips? We're the ones who are estranged from the relationship with God because of what we had done. It's our fault. But the reconciliation that occurs, occurs because Jesus Christ stood in our place and said, I will experience that sense of of, of alienation, that sense of, 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 of being separated on your behalf, that estrangement. Jesus assumes our estrangement so that we might be reconciled. 
The gospel is about a son and his father who lived in perfect unity and joy and love from all eternity. A son and his father, who, a son who, who from his father nonetheless willingly chose to be estranged so that you can be reconciled. Are you stunned? Ought to be. We ought to be. Now, one last thing, and this is where we often, we actually often leave this off when we come to the gospel. Uh, we're alienated by sin. We're reconciled by Christ. But finally, we are presented, we will be presented as holy. Right? Look again at verse 22, but now continue all the way to the, the end of verse 23. Right? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Right? See, this addresses another common misunderstanding of the gospel. Often, the, the gospel is just about, you know, to, to use the religious, you know, it's just about getting saved. It sort of stops at reconciliation. I mean, and that's good news, but it just sort of stops there, right? And this is unintentional, but the impression that it gives is that the gospel is just about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that forgives your sins, and then that's it. But that's not it. We're not just forgiven. We're presented holy and blameless and above reproach. We're made holy. The death of Christ on the cross for us doesn't just remove our sin. It makes us righteous. We're not without blemish and free from accusation here, now. But because of what Christ has done, we will be without blemish, free from accusation. Not only is there nothing for which we can be blamed, no mark or spot or guilt of all, there will be no chance of it. What Jesus presents to his Father as holy is holy. The reconciliation that has occurred is eternal and it is permanent that conditional phrase verse 23 if indeed you continue right you may have said that. it's not intended to introduce doubt the condition and that conditional phrase is real the reconciled christian must continue in his faith in order to be presented as holy but it's a condition that is expected to be met because of the one who does the reconciliation this is how one of the commentators puts it the greek words here do not suggest any serious doubt about whether the condition will, met, will be met, but rather emphasize a condition without any suggestion that the condition will not be satisfied. In other words, for someone who truly believes the gospel, Jesus assures that this condition will be met. He will continue and persevere all the way to the end. That's the gospel. You were once alienated from God by sin. You are now reconciled with God by Christ and you will be presented to God as holy. Once alienated, now reconciled and to be perfected because of Christ, when you put your faith in him. Now, just a couple of quick implications as we close of, of what, might, what that might mean if that gospel is central. What are the characteristics? What would a church look like, or an individual look like, but we're speaking specifically of a church? What does it mean to be gospel-centered, to have that at the very center? Let me just rattle off a few things that I think are helpful guides for us as a church. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, number one, being gospel-centered means that you take sin seriously. You have to. The gospel says that sin is not a trivial matter, right? Think of what we've been saying here. If the problem of humanity was minor and easily fixed, then why would you need to send to death the Son of God? If all we needed was a band-aid, some good advice, and a pep talk, it seems like a little bit of an overkill. But it wasn't an overkill because sin is bad. A gospel-centered church will take sin seriously, won't downplay it, because to do so, is to misdiagnose the problem and do disservice to the sinner. 
But number two, being gospel-centered also means that there is no sin that is beyond the forgiveness and the reconciliation of Christ's work. We never want to diminish the alienation, but on the other hand, we never want to diminish the reconciliation. Remember, this is not a band-aid that's being offered here. This is not a pep talk. This is not good advice. There is no sin. There's no rebellion against God that is so great that it would disqualify someone who repents from the offer of reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. A gospel-centered church takes sin seriously. A gospel-centered church takes forgiveness seriously. So while there is no one who walks through these doors who is a sinner that, it, that, that should shock us because we know the seriousness of sin, there is no one who walks through these doors to whom we cannot with confidence, offer the hope of reconciliation, regardless the degree of the alienation. Third, being gospel-centered means, therefore, that we proclaim it. Right? Like it says in verses 23 and 24, we, we proclaim the hope of the gospel in all creation under heaven. Right? Where? Just like little parts of it? No, it is to be declared And we do it with humility because we know the extent of our sin and we do it with boldness because we know the extent of Christ's forgiveness, but we declare it, we proclaim it. A gospel-centered church humbly and boldly shares the gospel. Now finally, being gospel-centered means that we persevere all the way to the end. Through the struggles, through the difficulties, together as a church, we have confidence that there is a day when all those things will be wrapped up, that they will be perfected that we will persevere when, when Roy and Bertha Byram returned to Asia they didn't return to Korea they returned to live in what is now Manchuria and as war clouds began to gather in the late 1930s they had the ability to leave they were American citizens but they stayed they stayed there they stayed ministering alongside other missionaries to proclaim the gospel both to the the ethnic Chinese and the Japanese people who were living there in Manchuria, but in the fall of 1941, with the declaration of war against America and the occupation of the, of, of the region by the, the Japanese, the missionaries were given a choice by the imperial government of Japan. This is, your, this is your choice. You can pay homage to the state Shinto religion or you can be imprisoned. Those were your choices. They chose imprisonment and they weren't alone. Among them were more than 30 Korean Christians who made the same choice. And Mrs. Byram wrote that it was humbling to be in the presence of these Korean Christians because they had endured far greater suffering than the Americans with far less hope of rescue than the Americans. Uh, another one of the American missionaries who was among the group, his name was Bruce Hunt, he wrote, he said, I was, I was a citizen of a great country that might at some level be able to affect my deliverance if I made a stand for the right I could expect at least some human backing and that is what ultimately happened the Americans among them were ultimately rescued February 1942 the U.S. State Department arranged in the midst of a state of war arranged for a prisoner swap that freed Hunt and the Byrams but this is what Hunt wrote with the Koreans it was different they didn't have that option They were the subjects of the Japanese. No country was going to fight for them. And when a Korean stood for the right in the face of government persecution, he could expect no mercy. And yet, and yet they knew that they actually did still have someone who would fight for them, who would stand with them to the end. Uh, Bruce Hunt later told how back when all the Christians had first been 
arrested back in 1941. They were first grouped together at a detention center where they were processed, and they were given the opportunity at this detention center to admit their error. <laughs> um, and, and, and then when they would not admit their error and bow down to the, to the Shinto religion, they were shackled together, and they were led from the building to be loaded into vehicles that would take them to the prisoner camp. Now, it was just the men at this point, and there were outside a crowd of the Korean women and children gathered around the families of these husbands and fathers who were now being imprisoned because of their refusal to abandon the supremacy of Jesus. And these women and children, they were obviously concerned, but even in the face of the armed Japanese soldiers, they were not afraid. And they were shouting to their, to their husbands, they were shouting to their fathers, they were asking them about their conditions, asking them if they, if, they were, if they were okay. And then one woman above the entire crowd shouted out, Kutkachi! Kutkachi! It's from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and it means to the end. And then the other women and the children, they began to shout it too. Kutkachi! Kutkachi! to the end. See, the gospel means that we will stand firm to the end because we have a king who has already rescued us and guaranteed our eternal destination. The gospel. The alienated have been reconciled and they will stand to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a gospel that we do not deserve, for a message of hope that is ours in the midst of a world of despair. Lord, help us to do thing, two things. Help us to internalize that, to be a continually and always amazed by that. And then, Lord, from that amazement, move us to share it, to tell others about it, to bring hope where there is despair, to bring light where there is darkness, to present the hope that is found in the one gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.